Welcome to the Mr. R Show, brought to you by the Monthly Recurring Revenue Institute. If you're an accounting firm owner or manager seeking harmony between work and life while optimizing profitability, you're in the right place. Our goal, to empower you with the knowledge and tools necessary to enhance both your personal and financial well-being. In every episode, we bring you insights from esteemed individuals in the field who share their valuable expertise and practical steps. Join us on this journey as we collaborate to revolutionize your business and enrich your life. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of the Mr. R Show, hosted, brought to you, presented by the Monthly Recurring Revenue Institute. On this episode today, we're going to focus really on a good topic we hear a lot about, have heard a lot about, um, which is really how how do we support those foreign investors looking at the U.S., looking at the United States as an opportunity for them and their portfolios. So couldn't think of a better person to join us than who you are about to meet, Angie Ortega. So Angie's actually, uh, she's the founder of CEO Accountant. So what a great name, right? We're talking foreign investors, we're talking CEOs, and of course, we're talking accounts. So Angie's going to hop on here with us go through this topic and really walk through it with Chris and myself. Obviously, Chris personally, in their private practice, they've handled a lot of foreign investors, um, really looking at just businesses as a whole, investment properties in the real estate side, a lot of experience, and a lot of great takeaways are about to come from this episode. So hopefully you guys enjoy it as much as we do recording these. Let's stop wasting time. Let's jump right into it. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Mr. R Show. Here, as always, we have a great guest with us. Across from me, as always, as well, is my partner in crime, the guy I've known for a very long time, smartest guy that I know personally in the tax world, has run his practice pretty much, um, I'd say, like a fine-oiled machine and learning a little bit along the way. Chris Pacura, how are we today, buddy? Johnny T, great to be back on the Mr. R Show. I am very excited about our guest today. You know... Uh, I mean, we've been talking about this show. I know it's kind of in, in, in its infancy, and we have our Teaching Tax Flow show that's about been around about a year. And you know, I've been looking for an expert when it comes to foreign nationals investing in the United States. I'm really excited we have that today. And all of you tax practitioners out there, I could promise you, of course, you're going to pick up that free CPE, but you're going to grab some takeaways and have an amazing resource uh, at your disposal. Awesome. Awesome. So you already heard the intro. You, uh, If you actually took the time and read the show notes, you see who our guest is on this show. And as Chris mentioned too, you know what? I should preface this. I said the smartest person, I think it's how I worded it, the smartest person in the tax realm. Chris, you may, be, uh, you may be beat out by this one. She may be a little smarter than you. Well, John, uh, you said you said the smartest guy in the tax world. So very I'm true. Very with true. that. And I, I, I agree. You know, it's always good to bring in people smarter and more talented than you. So uh, and John, I think I'm the only person you own the tax world. So that, I oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, now you're making it. And I know she's like, die. she's chomping at the bit to get in here and, and start right. chatting. But, but, you know, it, the one thing that it doesn't take hard to beat you at, you know, you always put in pickleball jokes. And I always like to say the hair jokes. You know, anybody could beat you in the hair world. I have, I have more I have more hair on my chin than you have on your head. And that's what taxes will do to you, to some people, if you go about it the stressful way. So cutting to the chase, Angie, welcome to the show. Um, as Chris mentioned, he's super excited to have you here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you so much for bringing me to the show. I, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. 
Uh, well, my name is Angie Ortega, the CEO accountant. I work strictly with foreign um, nationals that do business here in the U.S. So today it's going to be a very interesting topic uh, that not a lot of accountants have a very well-versed expertise in. So I'm really um, glad to be here and be able to guide um, other accountants in this journey. Awesome. Well, we're so happy to have you here. So I, I have to ask the burning question, right? So how how did you get into this? Like, how did you find this niche? And then really, how did you how did you get maybe your first couple of clients in this realm? I mean, was this something where you had a lot of inquiries on and started to send them elsewhere and then realized, hey, I have an interest in this? Walk us through that a little bit from earlier on. Well, my story really started um, in the tax industry uh, over a little about a decade ago. I started doing taxes when I was very young. Uh, I think I started at 19 years old. And, um, you know, I, I started like any other accountant first, you know, understanding basic taxes, basic accounting. I went to college. When I graduated, that's when I knew that I want to do this full time. I wanted to create a business. I have a very business mindset. And I got into mentorship first. I, I, uh, I really invested in getting mentors. I really invested in understanding the market that I wanted to cater to. What, what would make me different compared to others around the market. And I wanted to create something worldwide. Um, so from my mentorships, I noticed that there was a specific niche, which is foreign entrepreneurs that wanted to start a business in the U.S. that not a lot of accountants have an expertise or knowledge in. And that's when I really started diving in. This was about five years ago. Um, I started diving in into the industry, understanding the tax laws, the implications, um, you know, the nuances around that. And that's where I really got into that particular niche. How I started getting my clients is a little different. Um, I actually went out and created joint ventures. Um, I started getting uh, referrals from very strategic partnerships. And um, that's how I started my journey. Excellent. Excellent. And then as far as for some of those early clients that you may have had, I mean, did you did you notice right out of the gate that they all had very similar questions or anything like that? Or, or did some of them yeah. just have kind of off the wall? No, very ideas. similar questions. Very, very similar. I think with foreign um, entrepreneurs that want to come into the U.S. market, the majority was, well, what is my tax implication? What, you know, what do I, what will be my responsibilities? And um, what would, what does that entitle? Right. There's a lot of misconception on, well, I'm a foreign. I don't have a physical presence. Nexus, I don't pay taxes in the U.S. That does not apply for everyone. Right. So uh, coming across these clients, I started to notice that they wanted to build a business, but they didn't have a great understanding what their tax taxes would be. And um, my first couple of clients really started in the e-commerce sector, IT, e-commerce. And then it started to evolve more into the investor side. Investors wanted to come in, um, understand the taxes, understand the actual um, compliances around that and the uh, structuring of the corporation. What would be the best case scenario for tax purposes? Because for our foreigner investors, they think completely different than someone that wants to come in and just create a, an e-commerce store, right? Absolutely. Well, I love that what Angie said is one of the things that's written on my board here in my office is collaboration over competition and creating those joint ventures with other accountants is so key as we, 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 the Mr. R show and the MRR Institute teaches to really niche down uh, and specialize. 
and also collaborate with other accountants. So love to hear that. Um, and creating those joint ventures is, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll circle back to that, at, you know, later on in the in the episode here. Um, but yeah, th- that's that's awesome. And I mean, Angie's got a passion for helping these people out. Um, I think that what you know to kind of start the the thirty thousand foot view of foreign nationals. Uh, of course, the tax code refers to them as, as as aliens. We don't. I said I wouldn't say that, but I, I did. Uh, we don't like that term. But as foreign nationals investing here in the United States, um, obviously they'll they'll come from different um, expectations, right? Some of them might be investing in real estate. And, and sometimes their, their expectation of returns is a little are a little different. Someone, some of them might be trying to get uh, cash or, or, or out of the country that they live in over here, where it's at least in some type of hard asset. Some of them are trying to establish a business so that for for citizenship potentially. Um, so Angie, can you tell us kind of you know what buckets of investors you're seeing? Um, not necessarily what country they're coming from yet, but what 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 their objectives are for different investors. Uh, for most of these investors that do come in, like you mentioned already, they do come from different, they have different plans and strategies around why they want to come into the U.S. I see, um, I'll see the good majority of them would want to come in because they want to get an investor visa, come to the U.S. legally, um, be able to live within the U.S. and live an American lifestyle, right? Um, because they want to get out of their home country. I do get a lot that um, they don't want to live in the U.S., but they want to move their money or move their assets or expand their whatever they are currently have within their home country. Why? Because they don't want to keep their money in, in one place, right? They're looking for different opportunities to keep growing their um, their finances or their income. And then we do have a lot that do come as startups that just want to venture out and they want to see, hey, maybe I can make it. <laughs> um, and we get that here, here, uh, even here in the U.S., right? And foreign investors are not just people that live abroad. They also can be living here in the U.S. that are not U.S. residents um, under a particular visa, but they want to create a business. They want to invest. They want to start living an American lifestyle. So we do get a, quite a bit of different scenarios. I'm going to ask another question about the, that classification, uh, you know, it, and it can be very confusing, but do you typically, for, for some of the foreign nationals that you're working with, foreign investors, foreign entrepreneurs, obviously they come over, let's say they, they come into the United States and, and they begin investing um, on, an, on, an, on an investor visa. So they're a U.S. non-resident for our federal tax purposes. Do you um, see them becoming a U.S. tax resident over the course of years based on the days they're staying here? Or, or is that something that you, and then do you continue to work with them? Can you touch on that? Because that's really, you know, when I first started getting into the tax business, I, I I was like, well, if someone, how could someone be a U.S. tax resident, but they're not a citizen? And that's a completely different concept. Yeah. Um, can it you touch on that for our practitioners? Because I was confused about it quite a bit. Yes, there's definitely um, a fine line, right, between immigration and what immigration allows. And then, of course, what the IRS states. Um, with a lot of that that do come to the U.S., we start looking into the physical presence nexus. How long have they been in the U.S.? Um, and when once they meet that physical presence nexus according to the IRS code, then that's when they are considered a tax resident of the U.S., which therefore they move from a 1040 NR to a 1040, right? 
and they will have to claim taxes and pay taxes as a U.S. tax resident. But what does that mean also for them? That they have to understand they also have to pay now worldwide income. If they didn't have to do that before, now they will, right? Because now they have to abide by those tax rules. So yes, there is a there's a big fine line with immigration and what the IRS allows. Exactly. And that's why you want someone like Angie to navigate that because a lot of times um, foreign nationals, foreign investors, they'll come to the United States here. And a lot of times they have some other business, some other financial resources, bank accounts. And once they become a U.S. tax resident, even though they're not a citizen, now we're talking, like you mentioned, now they're going to, to that 1040. We have potential FBAR issues. We've got potential um, reporting of foreign businesses, foreign tax credits. And it's it, it, and there's some good consequences from an estate tax side, potentially having the bigger exemption amounts. Uh, but there, but th that's a very um, interesting thing, especially when you run into a situation where you might have one spouse that's here, one spouse that's not here, um, or children here. So, gosh, it's so good that you you know that you have that knowledge and um, and you're able to navigate those those foreign nationals. I call them foreign nationals. I know foreign entrepreneurs. Um, so so there's that path of sounds like someone coming to the United States as an entrepreneur, setting up a business with the path of them being a, a U.S. tax resident and maybe a citizen. Um, there's also a significant amount of people, and especially because in our private practice, it's real, very real estate heavy, um, that buy rental properties here in the United States. Now, and sometime, now, now it's a little more difficult, uh, but before they could, they could even set up bank accounts here, get ITINs, and never step foot in the United States, let's say 10, 12 years ago. Um, can you talk us through a little bit about, let's say you have a foreign national that, and we can, let's just say they're from uh, Australia. Yeah, I know Australia has different rules, but that's, it doesn't really matter where they're from. We'll dive into some of those later. They want to buy an investment property. Let's say it's in Atlanta, very popular place for them to buy. Um, they're concerned about maybe forming an LLC. Uh, they and they get referred to you, but they know they need an ITIN and they they might be subject to FERPTA withholding. Can you talk a little bit about your role as a certifying acceptance agent and and what you would what what you would talk to that client about. Well, first, um, so let's say they're coming in, they want to invest in a property. Um, they don't, they're not looking to come to the U.S. They're just wanting to, you know, allocate their income or their, their, their profits, right? So um, in this case, we look at different scenarios. We still have to look at the tax implications of having an LLC, if an LLC is even the a best structure for them, right? Because sometimes they want to have a corporation first and then an LLC under that to obtain properties. Um, and also it comes down to the country that they're in because we have to look into the tax treaty at that point. Um, so, for example, if they're looking to come in and buy a property as a single member LLC, they are considered foreign owned LLC with effective connective income because they are conducting business within the U.S., they are receiving rental income within the U.S., um, which therefore they will be then required to file that 1040-NR and then apply for the ITIN. Now, the ITIN can be applied uh, two different ways, one through the corporation structure or through the actual tax return. Um, and aside from the 1040-NR, they have to submit the 5472, which is a very important form to submit on time because otherwise they get that $25,000 penalty fee. 
um, which a lot of them don't understand that that is actually, you know, an important form to file <laughs> versus a 1040NR. I was like, we can go away with the 1040NR, but not with the form 5472. But yeah, um, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, but, you know, that's why we, we, before we even incorporate, we have to see what they're willing to or what they're wanting to invest in, what type of property, if it's through the real estate, um, and then determine which structure is uh, correct for them. Because one thing that I look into is what country, uh, what are the tax implications within that country as well, if it's if it allows a flow through entity, um, if they also have to pay an income tax in their home country, if they have an LLC, or if there's another structure that will be better for them according to what their goals are. And that is, so as tax practitioners out there, I know um, this is something that is, it's very tricky and you have to be aware of it. When you have a foreign national that starts, that forms an LLC here, you know, we, we know that LLCs are disregarded entities for federal tax purposes. So even if it's a single member LLC, if the person was a U.S. tax resident, it would just slap the rental property on their 1040. But if they're a non-resident, this 5472 form has to be filed. Isn't that, is Angie, is that annually, I believe? It's annually with the tax return. So with the tax return. Penalty and I, we had some, we were we were made aware of someone, thank goodness it was a nurse, that got assessed a $25,000 penalty. And I think as tax practitioners, just this is my personal opinion, that I think the IRS is really going to push down in the next 10 years on enforcing tax penalties because it's not it's hard for them to sit and go through an audit to argue mortgage interest, travel expenses, mileage. Yeah, they can, but it's still there's going to be a compromise. If you didn't file a form or you filed a form late, there's no way out of that. You are going to get the, the penalty. So um, can you, Angie, can you just touch a little bit on that 5472 and, and if, if a practitioner... What would you advise, God forbid, and, and it happens, uh, we don't live in a bubble, they are working with a foreign national. Sometimes they don't even know the na foreign national. Um, hopefully you're not dabbling in 1040NR work. You either do it full-time or you're not. But let's say you decide to dabble and you filed returns for someone for three years and you never filed a 5472 and it just came to your attention. Sometimes the property sold, getting sold and uh-oh, uh what was... What would you recommend that someone consider other than, you know, maybe say a few Hail Marys or something, but <laughs> but file 5472 remedies. I mean, it's got to happen sometimes. It's going to have to be filed. You know, IRS doesn't like it when you're trying because it, it will be considered an, an invasion of a tax. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it will have to be filed. You will have to deal with the consequences right after. Uh, you will have to explain to the client, hey, uh, we came across this. Unfortunately, it has to be filed. We can probably remedy or we can probably negotiate with the IRS the penalty fees that will be assessed because they will be assessed. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, kind of take it away. Uh, I do. I have seen clients where they get that first year abatement, right? Um, abated. So that can be one off, um, let's say for three years, but that second or third year, it will have to be then negotiated with a reasonable cause of why it was not filed to determine if the IRS will even waive off those fees or at least reduce them. Um, so that's where tax resolution comes into place, right? So if if I would suggest if an accountant does want to take an account with a foreign national, be sure to understand the full tax implications 
because the IRS does not take a, oh, I did not know as an answer um, for, you know, not filing certain forms. And I'm not, I've seen situations where, where taxpayers basically just ate the FERPTA withholding and just took their money. Anyway, I'm not advising that, but I, I know um, you mentioned something really important. Uh, and I'm always looking at it from the tax pers- tax preparer's perspective. Um, you mentioned East, effectively connected income. We call it ECI. Um, and understanding that, let, let's say I've got a fax better. Let's say I'm a, I'm, an, I'm an accountant in the middle of Ohio. I have a client that does property management. That property management company now brings in a, starts managing a property for a foreign national. Um, let's assume they don't have a LLC. They just own a property outright. Obviously, that foreign national is not going to have a, a social security number. Um, they're kind of, they're subject to a a, uh, a FERP they're withholding. I believe it's thirty percent of gross. Thirty percent. Um, is there any remedies for electing out of that at all? That, so, um, because you want to advise your client, if you're the accountant, you want to advise your client on that. Oh, first of all, call Angie, but if she's not available, you know, advise your client. Yes, D- uh, you definitely can. In certain countries, uh, we do have tax treaties uh, with a lot of countries. And if that particular client lives within a tax treaty, um, we can then uh, declare that W8BEN. Um, and then have that withholding um, for them not to be a withholding, right? That does not apply for everyone, but that's one way to um, have that not done on their behalf. Obviously, if they are receiving income from the U.S., that does not waive them off from uh, filing a 1040-NR, even though they are a non-resident or they don't have, you know, they, they're not nationals of the U.S., uh, they just they do still have effective connective income, right? Uh, and they will be required to file a 1040 NR and then pay taxes if they have to pay taxes here in the U.S. If there is a tax treaty in place, then we use the tax treaty benefits to determine if they pay a lesser tax rate or they don't pay at all. Um, so case by case scenario, but yes, it can be waived off if they have a WABEN with a tax treaty in place. Right. So if you have that, and, and I see it all the time, again, we're in the real estate space, but if you have a, if you're a tax professional and you have a client that is acting as what we would call a withholding agent, right? All of they're, they're collecting that revenue and they're dispersing it um, to foreign, foreign nationals, foreign entrepreneurs, there's a 30% withholding based on gross. And guess who's going to get assessed that penalty? Is IRS going to go after someone in overseas or are they going to come after you? So you want to make sure that you have a that W-8 series form on file, if applicable, to elect out of the withholding or reduced withholding. And, and like Angie said, it's a case-by-case basis because there are, we have, you know, in general, the countries the United States plays nice with ha- have tax treaties, and some of them they don't play nice with don't have tax treaty benefits. And Angie, on that note too, what as far as for, you know, looking at a global map, I mean, where do you see the majority of investors and in, in foreign entrepreneurs coming from? Is there is there any... Hot spots, we should say. Yeah, there is. There's definitely. Uh, I'll say one of the major ones is our sister. Uh, I'll say our, our country right on top of us, which is Canada. Uh, we do get a lot of Canadians, um, Australians, the UK, India, uh, Mexicans as well. I do get a lot of people from Mexico. And I'm starting to see more of uh, South Americans uh, coming in. Uh, and that's because of what's happening within their home countries that the doll, you know, they're their dollar currency is not worth anything. <laughs> so sure, sure. Um, 
But yeah, a lot of them do come from Canada, I'll say. Okay. And even looking at that, you know, the volume of, we'll, we'll just say foreign investors, foreign entrepreneurs, are a lot of them, you know, Chris kind of going back to what you said a little while ago. And and obviously, as, as you and everybody knows, I am not in the tax world every single day. So the questions I have are more from the the average Joe, we should say. Um, the makeup of these individuals or, or these grouping of individuals, do you see it as somebody who, again, doesn't necessarily see themselves, say, traveling to the U.S. on a frequent basis, doing business here in person? Or is it somebody looking at, you know, do you have individuals setting up satellite offices? Like me coming from the tech space, you know, I looked at it for a while ago. It seemed like everybody and their cousin, it was the other way around. They were opening up um, offices in Dublin. So in Ireland, like a lot of the the big tech firms, a lot of them were opening up offices over there. I mean, obviously it was for a number of reasons. We don't have to go into that realm. But again, kind of that question of, you know, you mentioned a lot of Canadians. Um, you mentioned India in there specifically. Are they opening up offices here, kind of building teams here, building the company here, or are they just more or less looking to do more business here virtually, we should say? Well, well. I guess it depends, but with what I'm getting uh, so far, or at least the type of clients that we are uh, receiving is that um, I'll say a little a spectrum of two. One is they just want to invest. They just want to move their money. Uh, they're not looking to come to the U.S. Uh, all, they're just gonna, probably going to invest in a property, you know, and then have somebody else manage it, right? Um, because they have other businesses to take care of. Um, then I do have those ones that do want to move to the U.S. They want to get rid of that Canadian residency or, you know, residency from their home country, move into the U.S. So they are looking to invest, whether it's a brick and mortar and create an actual business and, and build it up, uh, hire leads, contractors, whatever that is, um, they will actually be coming into the U.S. So we do get a little bit of both, right? Um, and we have different type of investors. We come um, you know, trying to build a brick and mortar and ones that just want passive income. Excellent. Excellent. It's what you mentioned, you know, I would say 12 years ago, we had that crazy cocktail of our currency and the Canadian dollar almost being par. We had the 08, 09 kind of crash of the real estate market. We saw Canadians flooding in, especially in areas of Florida, um, many paying cash. Some of the Canadian banks would actually let them get a loan against these assets. Um, besides that, you know, obviously Canada is probably our friendliest neighbor. Uh, there, I, I, John and I both grew up in Detroit. So we were, we were, if we were any good at golf, we could hit a golf ball over to Canada and we used to go there a lot. Um, but fun, fun fact about Canada, if I could break, break it for one moment, did you know that Detroit is the only place in America that you can actually look south into Canada across the Detroit River. There you go. Yes. Fun fact. Fun fact if anybody's on Jeopardy. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, Windsor, Canada. Windsor, yep. Windsor, Ontario. I'm sorry, in Detroit, Michigan. Um, but Angie, just kind of since Canada is the most prevalent country, um, and practitioners are, you know, they're they're investing in Florida. I feel like people from like Saskatchewan and and in the western part, love investing in Arizona. Some of them are snowbirds, but then they might rent their house out sometimes. Some of them are trying to not be here for six months on purpose. But the point is, um, there are some special rules, some considerations for that Canadian investor. Can you touch on those? Just thirty thousand foot view uh, for that for that tax practitioner. Sure. With 
Canadians in particular, it's a little bit different how we handle and manage uh, their their taxation. I take a little bit more precautions on how we structure them and depending on the type of business that they want to conduct here in the U.S., just because with the tax treaty that we have in place with the U.S. and Canada, it's, it's very strict. Um, one, because Canada does not see an LLC as a corporation. So if they say, oh, I want to form an LLC, I'm like, okay, you can do that, but you have to understand that you will have to pay taxes here and then flow that through your Canadian tax return and then pay your taxes in Canada. And probably you'll get a, a tax treaty benefit in Canada or whatever taxes you pay here in the U.S. A lot of people don't like that because their taxable rate in Canada is way higher than what it is here in the U.S. That's one, right? There's no double taxation, quote unquote, but it still flows through into their Canadian tax return. Uh, when they're trying to invest in property, right, in, in actual uh, property uh, going into the real estate, um, I'm very particular how they are actually structured. Um, and the reason why is because a lot of them, it, if they do invest here, not only are they going to be paying taxes for whatever comes here in Canada as well, and they're, like I said, their taxes are a lot higher. So in this case, what we like to do is have them structure first in Canada, then move into the U.S. as a corporation, whether it's an LLP, um, and then through the LLP, create the um, LLCs uh, under them to buy out properties. Um, this is a better strategy for them, uh, for Canadians, because it avoids uh, or it reduces, not avoids, it reduces their um, taxable income, right? So they have a very specific way of how we have to actually conduct their business under a real estate investment compared to if they want to go into IT or e-commerce, then that's a whole different story, right? Exactly. So they, the the bottom line, and we're not here to give Canadian tax advice. Obviously, Angie's got some resources, I'm sure, in Canada. Uh, but the Canadian Revenue Agency doesn't look at, the, at an LLC as a, as a disregarded or a flow-through entity. And that that's the genesis of the problem. So proper structuring um, is important uh, in that do you, um, and you touched on something, you know, an LLP versus the LLC, but also earlier on, you touched on potentially creating a corporate entity. Um, obviously, there's, you know, in owning real estate in a corporation, if you're a U.S. resident, isn't always the best idea. But for, for nationals, I mean, obviously, with the state tax consideration, um, are there benefits for them to consider owning their business or real estate in a, a, a domestic corp? here or, or some type of foreign corporation? Right. Um, it depends on each scenario, right? Um, we we have to look more into the tax implication. Obviously, there's the legalities around incorporation, so that's more of a business aspect. But when it comes to the tax implications, in real estate, you don't always want to have everything under a corporation, right? Because of, of the um, asset protection, right? Um, but in certain cases, yes, we do want them to have a corporation, a C-Corp, because they can't apply for an S-Corp. Uh, a C-Corp, um, they will pay actual income tax here in the U.S. Right now is at a 21% taxable rate. And they will only pay uh, personal income tax if they withdraw dividends, right? Because um, they can't put themselves under a salary. And that's only if. 
right? Um, so there's strategies around that as well. That's what we always say, have them incorporate in their home country, depending on where they're coming from. But let's just say we're talking about Canada, um, incorporate in their home country, then come into the U.S., incorporate here, and then probably create the LLP if they're going into that real estate investment uh, investments. And have you, uh, no, that's really good advice. I know this is, and you might, you might say, Hey, uh, Hey grandpa, they don't, this isn't happening anymore, but I feel like 10, 12 years ago when I was in the space a little more, we had people investing using some type of retirement account, like a super fund from Australia, uh, the UK, I think allowed people it's, it's kind of like this similar to a self-directed IRA that we would have here in the United States, but foreign nationals were using their retirement accounts to invest in in businesses and property here. Have you seen anything like that at all, or is it kind of- recently? Okay. Not recently. I think yeah. the that we've received is that they have businesses in their home country and they just want to move their assets. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But they can. I mean, there are certain countries that do allow that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they do allow to use their retirement um, proceeds into a, a real estate investment here in the U.S. Obviously, it has to be structured in a proper way, uh, but yes, it can be done. Did you talk, and that kind of dovetails in when we were, you're walking back to that LLP. I want to touch on kind of shift gears now because this happens to a lot of tax professionals also. Fact pattern would be have a client, hey, um, I'm for, you know, I formed an LLC it's myself, my business partner, and my cousin uh, that that lives uh, in Israel, and he's an Israeli citizen. Um, but we, you know, he kicked in some money, so we we want him to be a member of this LLC. And I think that might trigger some type of potential withholding issues. Can you kind of talk about cons- thirty thousand foot view? But because a lot of times, as as tax professionals, we get stuck when we run into this new situation. Some of the things that we should consider, um, unfortunately. A lot of times we find out about these changes after the fact, but uh, when when an LLC or an LLP um, is obviously an S corp can't bring in a foreign uh, entrepreneur as an investor, what things should we consider? Yes, whenever you do have a partnership, once you have multi members um, within an LLC or an LLP, which is also a limited liability partnership, right? That's a little bit different. Um, how their business structured. So in this case, when they, you are bringing a foreign national um, into a partnership, they do have a 37% withholding that has to be done on a quarterly basis on the actual um, proceeds that that partner uh, brings in, right? It has to be paid out every year. We have to file the 8804-8805. If there's a partner based out of the U.S., then that person will be responsible for that, um, you know, submitting those withholdings. If if they're all foreign nationals within an LLC, um, then they have to be there has to be an appointed uh, U.S. representative for that corporation um, under that partnership. And not only that, uh, 2022 rolled out the K2s, K3s, which is another added uh, tax forms under a partnership for foreign nationals. This is where IRS wants to know where the money's coming from, right? If it's U.S. source, if it's foreign source, if you have, if that partnership has another partner that's based out, uh, outside of the U.S. or uh, under like another corporation. So it's a lot more complex at that point, right? The 
the forms become a lot more complex for tax preparers. So if you don't have a very good understanding of how to prepare these forms, I would suggest to partner up with another accountant that does or, or to just forward it to someone that can handle those type of cases because the tax implications or the liability around that for a tax preparer is really high. Exactly. And, and think about the, so that for national, there, uh, the entity itself is required to, to have quarterly withholding for that for national share of the income. Um, and I hate to say it, but you know, how many of these entities are actually doing bookkeeping each quarter and tracking that? So when you bring on that foreign national as a partner, a lot of clients don't understand it comes with a ton of responsibility, um, unintended consequence. So maybe if, if someone's coming in just as a, as a source of capital, maybe you should structure it where it's a loan um, instead of being a member of this LLC. Um, now, I think it would work differently if you had a C corporation, right? Because if someone bought shares in a C corporation, then they would, they would obviously be withholding on their dividends. Well, I yeah, touched on that a little bit earlier. Is that correct? That's right. Under a C corp, um, this is why we say that I personally hate the partnership structure. Good. Yeah, it's, it's very... They don't recommend it. I tell if you're going to have partners, we're going to have to go the C-Corp route, incorporating, just because it's easier to um, have shares within a corporation. And obviously, there's no withholding requirement <laughs> and less tax forms to to submit other than, of course, the 5472 that has to be submitted under also a C-Corp structure. Um, but other than that, it's a lot easier to manage than... <laughs> No partnership. So, yes. And then on top of with the partnership structure, now that foreign national will need to file a 1040 NR, potentially file in all these states that they might do business in. Right. Um, you're opening up a can of worms, in other words, yeah. what I'm what I'm saying, and, and you don't even realize it. So, um, you know, what do you, in that case, I don't know, you, you've got to. Yeah, I, I mean, they have to. Get a 1040NR, get the ITIN. Uh, most of them will get money back because they do get a you know 37% versus a 30% you know taxable rate. It's there's that little small gap right there, right? So I'll say, well, you'll have a um, a little savings towards the end of the year, but it will still take a while before the IRS even remits that, um, mostly in their first tax year, right? Uh, remits that refund. Um, that brings me to a question: is what tips can you give to uh, tax professionals? In uh, in here's the fact pattern: a foreign national has FERPTA withholding or some type of let's say does I, I know I keep using the real estate example. Let's say it is an e-commerce business and they have fifty thousand of profit allocated to them. Let's say we have the perfect client, white picket fence client, thirty seven percent sent to the IRS. We're not even touching uh, non-resident state tax withholdings, but that you know we're really this uh, this um, podcast is really focus on federal tax. So they have this withholding and um, and they need to, they're going to try to get it back, right? So they're going to file a 1040 NR. Sounds like they'll need an I-10. And, but do they need a representative like here? Uh, they might not even have a bank account here. How are they going to get, how can they get direct deposit? What are, you know, how, what are some practical tips you can give practitioners? Because yeah, it's, it's great to say I, I should get a refund, but Zyra's going to mail a check overseas. Uh, you know, there's a practical side of it. Can you touch on some of those challenges? 
Yes, it's definitely a challenge, uh, mostly when they are getting a refund and they don't have a U.S. bank account. Um, they don't have someone here in the U.S. So we have come across that, right? Um, and most of that, because they do have to get an ITIN, we can still treat, a lot of them use what we call the bank product, right? A lot of accountants use bank product for U.S. residents that have it, you know, um, to deposit. Very similar. It's very tricky. Um, because most of them will have to get a check. Uh, we'll have to either uh, get a check and you know deposit it in their foreign bank. Some of them will allow it, some of them won't. It, it becomes a lot more chaotic uh, in that case. And what what a lot of them tend to do is that they just forward any um, balances uh, into the next year's tax return and just keep rolling it until they are able to open up a bank account. So it is a it is. This is why I don't re recommend going that route because you do come across these challenges. Absolutely, that, that that's a huge challenge when you and that's a that's a strategy though. Is it just keep that that carry forward going because in general, I believe, and I could be wrong, but the foreign the foreign investor at some to establish a U.S. bank account might have to come actually to the United States. I mean, some banks might have an overseas presence. I, you know, I know those. Are, uh, but that's a challenge logistically to get them that that refund. Um, they want to move it back into the company, right? Because at that point, they can't have a U.S. bank account. So that's another way how we've handled it is that, hey, if, if there's no other possibility, we're just going to have to put it back into the company and it's just going to come in as a shareholder contribution um, into the corporation or into the partnership uh, right back into the company, right? So it's another investment going back in. Yeah, <laughs> there's strategies. Uh, depends on the country too, you know. But for corporations in itself, can open up a U.S. bank account um, whether they come here to the U.S. or online. So we do have a lot that open up with um, Relay Bank uh, is one of our preferred banks for our nationals that can't come to the U.S. for our foreign nationals that can't come to the U.S. Um, to open up a business checking account. And um, now for a personal, they do have to come to the U.S., unfortunately. There's no other way around that one. Well, that's understandable. It, it, um, when sometimes we run into situations where someone is using a foreign corporation and the foreign corporation just comes in and does business here. Um, have you run into situations like that before? There's no yeah. tier structure and... Are, what are the challenges? I, I mean, I don't. I'm. I know enough to be dangerous. I know there's like a some type of branch profits taxes, but just some of the challenges with that. Because again, as a, I mean, how many times as a practitioner you have a client, and they say, "Oh, well, you know, actually, my mom, my mom owns a corporation, and she started doing business here in the states. She's, you know, she lives in Australia." And you're like, "Oh boy." You know, this corporation <laughs> is a foreign corporation. I know corporation. maybe touched on 1120F, but yeah, what are what could, what what are some of your thoughts on that and, and uh, advice? Well, that's where that 1120F comes into place, right? These are this is an actual tax form that needs to be filed when a foreign corporation has um, U.S. Uh, presence, right? Um, they are conducting a business here in the U.S. under a foreign structure. Now. There are a lot more to the 1120F, right? We also have to see, well, do they come from a foreign country? Uh, what, I mean, the tax treaty, right? So if they come from Australia, um, we can use the tax treaty um, benefits so that they don't actually have to pay an income tax 
under that uh, guidance. Um, but does it apply for everyone? No, it does not. Then we also have to see if they have other tax forms that we have to submit, right? Um, and I don't like to touch those very often just because there's it's very tricky. Right, <laughs> <Even> exactly. We, <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, let me first look to see what country you're from, what kind of business you're doing here in the U.S., what's your physical presence nexus within the U.S., what exactly you're doing, and then we'll we'll see if we're taking you on as a client. But yes, in reality, it's it's definitely complex, not for someone. I think for that, those type of cases, you want to have someone that really understands the the nuances of filing those forms. Yeah, exactly. Very long, that tax form. And, that, and there's no software that has that tax form. You literally have to do this from grabbing the uh, tax form from the IRS website. <laughs> That's the theme is that a lot of time, the unintended consequences of having a lot of tax compliance, um, you know, is is challenging. And I would imagine some of these entities uh, use potentially cryptocurrency. Some of them don't have traditional bank accounts with a QBO feed, you know, so there's <laughs> there are a lot of challenges. And thus, hence why this the, this knowledge you have is so valuable, um, you know, because Again, we don't want to the tax tail to wag the dog, but a lot of times there there are things where where money's coming into the United States, and and for many people, the United States is an attractive option, even if they don't get a great return, because we actually have some. Regardless of if you like the government, don't like the government, we have an established government. We have building codes, we have rules, um, and some places don't, you know, and and that's that's interesting. Now, you, one thing that you mentioned, I want to touch on. Um, I knew that we had a lot of Canadians, Australians, people from the UK investing here, but you, you said there's some more um, Mexican nationals investing here in the United States. And um, what type of what are you seeing on that front as far as what they're trying to accomplish and different different industries that they're 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 investing in? And, and also, can can you touch on any if you if you have any experience on any special rules with with Mexico and the United States? But Mexico has um, very similar to Canada, right? Uh, because there there is a tax treaty between Mexico and the U.S. And depends on what they're trying to invest. We have to see, okay, what will be those consequences, right, within Mexico and the U.S. Um, I'll say that we're coming, we get a lot of investors in the real estate, but we are getting a lot more in the IT sector. Um, they're looking to invest in the IT. They're looking to do more like the outsourcing um, type of business where they are, um, you know, just creating job opportunities for other firms or for other um, IT industries. Um, now, in them in particular, with Mexico in itself, is we have to look more into the what are their, their tax implications or their business structure within Mexico and then coming into the U.S., right? Um, because there is that cross-border uh, between, you know, uh, laws, the, the cross-border laws, and then, of course, uh, what kind of business. Um, very similar to Canada, I'll say, uh, when it comes to that, but it's a little bit more flexible <laughs> uh, when it comes to their implications. And it gets structured almost the same way. Um, but... I'll say I'll take it case by case scenarios on those. Now, I'll say that for accountants, whenever you are looking to uh, 
let's say a client does come in or a potential client comes in, they are a foreign national or they want to invest or they already started a business and they're moving from another accountant because they didn't know any better because they do get a lot of those as well. Um, and uh, just do your due diligence, right? Do your due diligence. Um, make sure that is this a client that you want to take on? Um, is this a, a type of responsibility I want to take on? And then go from there. Right. Um, what what are their maybe work with them on restructuring them? Uh, that's more like tax planning. That's uh, providing that CFO or CFO services or advisory services. Um, and then uh, partner up with someone um, if that works. Right. If it's a client or this an industry that you want to learn, partner up with another accountant that was willing to do that as well. Um, for me, an in instance, I, I learned literally um from reading books, <laughs> reading books, understanding the tax laws, and then going to other accountants that had uh, an expertise in this field and getting their point of views and understanding what they're doing, partnering up with them. And that's how I got started in that sense, right? Um, so I always suggest the same thing for other accountants. Don't take a, a, a type, this type of client if you're not very well versed on all the implications around it. That's excellent advice, Angie. And it's you know, going back to what you guys spoke about a little bit ago, I've been sitting here writing and typing notes while you guys are talking because this, I, I shouldn't say that this is over my head, but it is over my head, which I, I enjoy it. I mean, I think, you know, listening to you guys chat back and forth on this, if it's somebody that has potentially turned these types of clients away, just, I wouldn't say out of fear, but almost of just being, it being outside of their wheelhouse, right? But they have an interest in it. It's not saying that you have to totally reinvent the way that you approach clients, right? It's it's almost an add-on if there's an interest in it and obviously a passion behind it. And you gave some great advice there too. And obviously it, what I was alluding to, what you guys spoke about is a lot of it comes down to strategy, right? So there's there's a lot of strategy involved really from point A to Z. But then on that note as well too, Angie, do you have any examples of and we'll we'll kind of play devil's advocate, but you know, kind of yin and yang this together. For anybody that's looking to potentially offer this as a service and take on these types of clients, what maybe are two polar opposite stories, right? Like what might be the absolute easiest one you've ever had, um, where somebody has come to you or have been referred to you, but then adverse, what was the absolute nightmare? I wish it'd say nightmare of a client, but nightmare of a situation. So really looking at it from both sides, you know, not just, and I'll let you start with whichever one you want, the good or the bad. Maybe we'll start with the bad first so we don't scare anybody off and then wrap it up with a good one. Uh, Cause I know we're, we're kind of creeping up here. I'm, I'm pretty close to an hour. So we appreciate it. Of course. Um, so I'll give you a bad scenario. This actually, this is a recent, um, I, we had a meeting with the client yesterday. Uh, oh, so extremely recent, like you're Very still in this. <laughs> Yeah, and I'll say this has been one of the wow. Um, I don't know what they were thinking kind of scenario. <laughs> so this this is a uh, an account that has four different LLCs. Uh, four different LLCs. This is a manufacturing company uh, based out of um, Peru, I believe. Based out of Peru, they're conducting business here in the U.S. They are manufacturing a clothing manufacturing company. And they created four different LLCs. And the first um, error that we saw that their previous accountant did was that in 2020, they filed it under a partnership when it's considered a single member LLC. First error that we saw. 
Um, second error that we saw is that none of the tax uh, returns were fi filed the 5472. And um, then the 1040-NR was obviously done wrong. So we had to literally tell the client, hey, not only do we have to do a cleanup work, uh, uh, cleanup work, um, we're going to have to restructure you. So this is where that tax planning comes into place. Um, but we also have to do tax resolution after the fact, uh, the consequences, and then we have to look into the future, right, to make sure that we are in compliance and you are good and set to go according now to the new structuring of your business. I think this has been a very challenging account because this is a company that made over $2 million. So just wow. to kind of keep perspective of what that can look like after the fact, right? Um, so that one is a very complex account because we have to do a cleanup work, resolution, tax planning, and then projections for the future. Well, um, that's it. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Angie. I and I'm saying this is where that expertise, that advice goes into. So it is a good account because I'm like, well, I know what my worth is and I can charge a pretty good penny for this type of work. Right. Um, but when it comes down to the client, it's we have to be very empathetic and unfortunately let them know, hey, this was done this way. Um, and this is how we have to do it to fix it and move forward. Right. So Well, that. And want to touch on one more thing here, because um, there's another challenging thing from the practitioner standpoint. We talked about a lot of these foreign nationals don't have bank accounts here yet. Let's say they're just getting started. How do you get paid from that? You know, they 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 could wire money to you, I guess. They could maybe they have a Venmo or something. But in the practical side of it, is if they don't have a bank account in the United States, what would, what are some of the uh, you know tactics? Because Especially you, you, I, I, you probably give them a quote and get a good amount paid in advance, just because of the nature of the work. But um, yeah, what are some of the challenges that that? Um, and we're not trying to deter practitioners from this, of course. What are some of the challenges just doing business with these foreign nationals getting paid? Um, I don't know. Come across challenges, to be honest with you. Oh, good. <laughs> um. I guess I've been lucky on that aspect, right? So most of them obviously don't pay from a U.S. bank account. They pay from a foreign and they use a credit card or they use a business account. Okay. Um, and they do ACH uh, wire transfers uh, from bank to bank or they pay directly into the invoice that we send them over. I haven't come across a, a scenario where like, hey, I just there's no way that I can pay or, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very interesting. Uh, I haven't had that you know, problem, in, in, at least in my end. <laughs> well, I think what you're doing, uh, yeah, in general, I feel like the um, uh, foreign nationals are real good about paying and under and, and appreciate our service. And you are, you know, a lot of them are really afraid of the IRS, you know, and they, and they realize that they need you. Like you're their lifeline a lot for a lot of them. So, um, man, well, I want to say on behalf of John, um, and myself, we really appreciate you being on this episode. I can't uh, recommend someone talk to you more if they run into foreign national issues. In fact, I'm after I want to talk to you about introducing you to some groups uh, that are looking for presenters on this uh, subject, real estate investor groups. Um, and yeah, Angie, what's the best best ways for someone to contact you? Um, 
and we're going to put all this in the show notes, but what's the best way to, for someone to contact you if they're looking to collaborate with you? Yeah, of course. Well, um, they can follow me on social media. They can send me a private message. Um, they can look me up in LinkedIn. And of course, they can um, always email me at info at ceoaccountant.com. And I'll be more than happy to uh, guide them, help them out. You know, I'm, I, I love to help other accountants and I love to provide value. So that's my, my, cause I, I received the same from others and, and I just, you know, share my knowledge to other accountants as well. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things we talk about is, is, uh, 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 commerce follows culture. So your, your culture, the fact that you don't have problems, you know, getting paid from these foreign nationals tells me that your culture is, is great. They love working with you. Uh, I think anyone listening to this podcast um, is going to understand that that you're very down to earth, practical, yet extremely knowledgeable on the on the rules. And the rules are the rules. Uh, but again, that's where planning can come in. And sounds like a lot of times these foreign nationals come in, not necessarily just you specifically, but in general in our profession with a fire to put out. They didn't know what they, and, and then once you get that fire put out, you can work on the tax planning side. So thank you so much. And I hope, uh, I hope everyone got a good takeaway from this. And thanks for listening to the Mr. R Show. As always, thank you everybody for joining us here on the Mr. R Show. Angie, thank you so much for joining us as well and really walking us through really what your day-to-day -day is a little bit with these clients. I know you shared some fantastic examples, which hopefully our, our listeners took a few notes from as well. A few takeaways there. Chris, my buddy, always thank you for joining us and co-hosting the show with me. I know your private practice, I mean, you've been running that for 20 plus years. A lot of experience there. Again, we're not going to date anybody on this show, but 20 plus years, it's a good bit. A lot of experience. Uh, but hopefully everybody enjoyed this one. Again, as much as we do recording these, the goal of this obviously is to provide you with a little insight into an area of a practice that you may sometimes shy away from a little bit just because it may be not be your niche, may not be your comfort zone, but hopefully you can expand that a little bit. Or even if it's not something that you want to focus on specifically, really aiding you in finding those strategic partners, really aligning yourself with some individuals that do focus in that area. Hopefully this show allows you to bring a little bit more um, confidence in that topic to the table. So hopefully you guys, everybody enjoyed it. Any questions, as always, shoot them over to us. That's hello at mrrinstitute.com. Hello at mrrinstitute.com. Shoot us any show topics, maybe some feedback even on this show or any questions that you may have for anybody within our community as well. So as always, we'll see everybody very soon. The content of this podcast does not constitute an offer of securities. Offerings can only be made through an offering memorandum, and you should carefully examine the risk factors and other information contained in the memorandum. The content provided is for educational purposes only. We encourage you to seek personalized investment advice from your financial professional. For all tax and legal advice, please consult your CPA or attorney. Investment advisory services are offered through Cabin Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Securities are offered through Cabin Securities, a registered broker-dealer.